this is our second message in our study of Hebrews. There are 303 verses in 13 chapters. And uh, as of this Sunday, we still have 301 verses to go. So uh, hang in there. The question was posed from two extreme points on the spectrum of righteousness. By the impeccably righteous one who lived a life of separation while nurturing the heart of true humility, the one who said, I am unworthy to even undo the laces on his sandals. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist asked, are you the promised one or do we look for another? And by the certifiably unsavable sinful one, who had five times endured the pain of rejection in failed marriages and had settled into a live-in relationship with no strings attached, separated from her community by her publicly stained immoral reputation, drawing water in the most inconvenient hour of the day simply to avoid the ridicule of her neighbors. She said, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then in uninhibited exposure, she declares to those who had for so long cast her aside, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? To the Jews who had turned to him in saving faith, the writer of Hebrews declares, yes, he is the one. To the unsavable Samaritans, the writer declares, this Jesus is the one. And to the cruel and arrogant Roman pagan, the answer is still the same. Yes, Jesus, he is the one. So as faith gets hard and the price of following Jesus becomes increasingly clear, the author to the Hebrews poses this unavoidable question, is he enough? Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, and we defined that last week, is that, that season of time between his first and his second appearing, the, the age in which we now live, he has spoken to us with finality, notice the past tense, by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature he upholds the universe by the word of his power and after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is even more excellent than theirs so because we were wrapping up vacation season and all, and many of you didn't have the privilege of starting with us last week, I just wanted to highlight a few points in review. I know that at this point, preachers always say, you can go back and listen to my last week's sermon. I tried that, fell asleep. I would not recommend you do it while you're driving. All Scripture, both old and new, is the very words of God. Six o'clock this morning, Linda, the, she is the grammatical expert of the household. We're discussing whether that is all Scripture, both old and new, are the very words of God or is the very words of God. And I said, I, I chose it this way because the emphasis on words, plural, we had that last week. Every word of the Old Testament 
is the breath of God. All the words are His. The second point from last week is that the Old Testament is all true. It is simply incomplete. He did not write the New Testament. We do not have the revelation in the person of Christ because the Old Testament was not honest, upright, or forthcoming. It's simply that everything in the Old Testament is true, but the story, the narrative, the redemptive unfolding is not yet complete until Christ comes. The third principle from last week is the subject theme of all of Scripture is the person and work of Jesus Christ. What is the one motif that threads the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation, together tightly? And it is simply this. It is the person of Christ and the work that He will do. So my granddaughter's husband's worship pastor out in Grand Island, and he, he made the statement that at the end of every service, he believes that we should his model is we should hear from God and then true worship is hearing from God, we respond. So his pastor always allows him to close the service with a song. And he said, I always choose a song that's about Jesus. If that doesn't fit the sermon, that's not my problem. (laughs) The subject theme of all scripture is the person of Christ. The subject matter of every corporate gathering, therefore, must be the person and work of Christ. But then this one, and when we gathered for prayer at 8.30 this morning, which I'd like to take a, a bunny trail on that. Jesus said, don't try this without me. That's a rimple paraphrase of John 15. Apart from me, you can do no thing. Uh, we, we gather at 8.30 for just 20 minutes to ask that the Spirit of God would arrive here in power as we work in that that this cosmic conflict over the eternal destiny of souls would, would, would be victorious for Christ when, when we gather. And uh, it's, I, is, it, is it asking too much that we would, we would arrive 30 minutes before the gathering just to, to bow before the one who, who, who alone can transform our hearts and our lives? So just lay that invitation is for the, all the churches. It's not a special collection of super pious, holier-than-thou people. If, if, if your heart recognizes we are dependent on Christ, I wonder well, what, what kind of a fire of revival might break out in the next year at Faith Bible Church if God's people did. I don't want to pick on anybody, but I told the prayer group this morning that there were 90,000 people jammed into Memorial Stadium to bow in worship of a country singer, and there are not 90,000 people in Lincoln today worshiping the one and only throne of God. Now, maybe it's because we don't sell beer. I don't know. I read the (laughs) article in the paper, but that brings me to this summary from last week. In every fellowship gathering, there are those who are rock-solid in their believing, unshakable in their faith. But there are also always those who are looking for an exit ramp. They're wavering, they're doubting. It it didn't turn out to be as easy or as delightful or as rewarding as I had first thought it was going to be. As pastors, as shepherds, our, our heart aches 
primarily for those, because among us there are always those who are wandering. It seems that those most vulnerable to that are the second and third generation of followers of Jesus. Asking the question, is, is, this, is this my faith? Or is this simply what my parents and grandparents believed and I just adopted it because of the culture and the environment I was in? We're praying that for those that are totally convinced and rock solid in their believing that Hebrews will so solidify that faith that heaven and hell itself couldn't shake you loose. But mostly we're praying for those who are just on the edge, asking the question, is Jesus enough? And then there are always those, always those, who have given intellectual assent to these truths. There's no debate, no argument. That, that was me for 21 years. But they have not humbled themselves to recognize they are lost and desperately need a Savior. They cannot save themselves. Only Jesus can save them. And they're willing to bow the knee of their heart to Him in believing faith. And virtually every week when we gather, there are those who are not yet convinced. They're just listening. First, Tim, or First Corinthians 14 calls them inquirers. They're inquirers among us. So this morning as we continue to move into the book of Hebrews, we, we believe that it's the hearing of the Word of God alone that will stir hearts to faith in Christ. So we're not going to give you some slick package communication, and even the PowerPoints are rather uh, mediocre to say the least. But we believe that if the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, He can transform the heart of the most unsavable sinner. So we're going to pray that way. Our God is a speaking God. He has chosen to communicate to us in a variety of ways through a vast variety of men and methods. But today, He has spoken with finality through His Son, the one and only, Jesus the Christ. And that message through His Son is the final word from God. No further revelation to come. It is all about Jesus. In Psalm 2, it says, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. At his baptism in Luke chapter 3, it says, and, and the heavens opened and one, the Spirit came like a dove and a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then in Luke chapter 9, the great mount of transfiguration where for just a brief moment, the veil that kept man from looking upon his unstained glory was removed. And during the transfiguration, after Peter suggested that they make three stick huts so that Elijah and Moses and Jesus could just camp out on a mountain, like they just came from where? And they wanted in a stick hut. The voice of God said, this is my son. He's my chosen one. Listen to him. In Luke 22, in the garden as he is praying on the night of his betrayal and the eve of his crucifixion, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And then finally the next day, from the cross, Luke 23, Jesus cried, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
He has spoken to us as the Son of God. He was introduced to the shepherds as the glorious Son of the Mighty One. He is the Son of God. As, as we go through Hebrews and over the first few weeks, because we're all playing catch-up on this, on this mysterious book that is, is intimidating to unpack, I'll, I'll, just try to, I'll try to give you the big picture repeatedly until it starts to settle in. What we're going to see, as I said last week, is that he is better than appears 13 times. But at the very beginning, he, we have already heard that he is better than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the prophets. The prophets were Israel's spokesmen from God. Everything that they said was true. It was the word of God, but it was incomplete. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Second thing, next week we'll look at, Jesus is greater than the angels. The angels were Israel's guardians. And there, we'll look at some of the stories of the Old Testament where the messengers of God came to do the work of God on behalf of the people of God. The third one we'll see is in the third chapter, and it is that Jesus is even greater than Moses, Israel's greatest human leader. And then when we get to chapter four, we'll find out that Jesus is greater than Joshua, Israel's great general. And then in chapter 4 and through chapter 7, we will come to the great heart of this message, and that is Jesus is even greater than Aaron, who was Israel's founding priest. Greater than the prophets, the great prophets, greater than the angels, the messengers and guardians from God, greater than Moses, Joshua, and Aaron. Jesus is better than all of that. Now, in this compact text. There, there, are, there are seven affirmations of the sonship of Jesus, his unique special relationship to the eternal God of Israel, the God of the universe, the God of e eternity. In speech class, or whether you're writing or speaking, they, they always remind you that the very first paragraph is critical. That's the key. If, if, you, if you don't arrest attention with that, you probably won't get their attention later on. I, I used to be invited to speak at, to speech classes at schools, and I had one particular friend that was a, she was a teacher of speech, and, and my last invitation came uh, when I was in front of them, and she asked in front of the, cla uh, the class, how much time do you spend on your introductory paragraph for your messages, and, and how do you script it out? And I didn't answer the way she wanted me to, so I never got invited back. I said, well, I spend a lot of time on it, but I don't manuscript it. And therefore, I just try to burn it into my memory. And she was trying to teach him manuscripting. So you've noticed since the COVID thing, not knowing what we would look like on a Sunday morning, I've tried to script it because either I have your attention in the first three minutes or you're not going to pay attention at all. The writer to the Hebrews has my attention. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What happened to the cultural etiquette of saying, dear brother and sister, I'm writing to you these wonderful truths and letters. He just 
jumps right over what is the expected niceties and gets right to the heart of the message. Is Jesus enough? And his answer right out of the chute is simply this. He is the Son of God. If that's not enough for you, we have no plan B. Seven affirmations. He says, He is the one whom He appointed as the heir of all things. To be the heir is more than simply receiving stuff. You think it was, uh, am I mentioned in the will? My grandson in Indianapolis when he was back a few weeks ago, he said, Papa, it, it, do you have me in your will? And I felt a little bit like the, you know, the prodigal son of Luke 15. Was he asking me if I was dead yet or dying soon? You know? And I'm not sure what he saw in the house that he wanted, but he wanted to make sure that he was in my will. I said, don't worry about it, Tate. In the will, I say, hey, Tate, how you doing? I said, you're mentioned in the will. We tend to think of the heir as those who receive some stuff. But there's a biblical narrative, there's a biblical motif of the heir. It starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when the garden, had, when, when the, the first couple has rebelled against God and they've been kicked out of the garden, and he promises them in chapter 3, verse 15, that it is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And in chapter 3, we are told, or chapter 4, I'm sorry, that, that Adam knew his wife, intimate with his wife Eve, and she had a son, and she called him Cain, saying, God made a man, and I made a man, and this is the hope. And then they had a second son named Abel, and the son of her hope, Cain, slaughters his brother Abel, and so God brings a third son onto the scene by the name of Seth, and in Seth is the heir of hope. If you're writing your family will out, let me suggest that rather than simply give equally to all of your descendants, you ask yourself the question, which of my children and grandchildren embrace my values? Because that's the portrait of heirs in the Scripture. Who will carry forward the mission and the priorities of the Father? And it wasn't Cain, it was Seth. So that's why Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 is getting older and older, and God has promised him a son, and his wife Sarah has not had a son. He's not had any children at all. And so he concludes in Genesis chapter 15, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. The firstborn son of one of my servants, he will then become the one not to receive all of the goods, but to carry the responsibilities of the family forward. And God said, no, your heir will be one that comes from your own loins and will come through the womb of Sarah. And Abraham believed God impossible as it was, and the Lord checked it off as righteousness to him. And Isaac, Isaac is thinking that he is handing the priority heirship to his oldest son, but his wife and his second son have deceived him, and then so Isaac then blesses Jacob instead of Esau, and Esau wants to kill him. Why? 
because he got all the stuff? No, they were rich kids. Their dad was rich. He didn't need more stuff. But it was that this is where this is where the passion, the mission, the purpose of the family is moved to the next generation. And then Jacob. When Joseph brings his two sons, he says, who, who are these? And he's, he, like his father's lost his eyesight. And he says, Father, these are the sons that God blessed me with here in the land of my captivity. And right, he gets ready to bless them, you know, knowing that he's blind. Joseph brings the boys to him so that the right hand, the hand of blessing, will go on the oldest and the left hand will go on the youngest. And the father switches his hands and does this. And Joseph grabs his dad's hand and says, no, 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 no. And he says, I, I, I have blessed what I have blessed. It, you see that this thing of the airship is about carrying forward the mission and purpose of the family. Or King David, who had 18 other sons and one daughter, but he declared that the second-born son of his seventh wife would become the heir to the throne. All of the responsibilities of the family, Solomon, ruled. So when it says is that he is appointed the heir of all things, what that means is that Jesus not only gets all of the stuff that his heavenly Father has, but he also is placed upon his shoulders the responsibility for the family moving forward. He is the messenger of these values and this promise. So that at the end of his earthly life, after his death, burial, and resurrection, right before the ascension, he says in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. He is the heir. Is he enough? He's inherited not only all that belongs to the Father, but he is the appointed one to carry the mission forward. Through whom also he created the world. He is not only the heir, but he is the creator of the earth, John chapter 1, there's way too many texts in Scripture. The Psalms are full of the reminder of God's creative power and work. John chapter 1, in, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Apart from Him was not anything made that was made in Christ Jesus. This Jesus that we're looking at, the Son of God, is the one by whom God created the heavens and the earth. He goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Connect Hebrews 11 to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things have come into being by Him. Apart from Him, this living Word, not anything has come to exist that now exists. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are invisible. Mom and Dad, as your kids launch into the school this week, don't forget to remind them over and over that faith is hard. That, 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 that their conviction that there is a Creator God and that Creator God has brought into existence everything that is and made it out of nothing because they are going to be bombarded day after day with other theories philosophies and explanations for the existence of things which diminishes then the value of humans who were created to be image bearers of god 
Remind your children that faith is hard, but it's by faith that we understand. We know with certainty that He created it by the spoken word. Genesis 1. God said, boom, it was so. It was to Job when he was starting to question God in the midst of his trial. That God, after he removes his three friends from giving all kinds of theological advice and counsel and interpretation, that finally Job said to one of them, he says, if I had an opportunity to sit down and talk to God, here's how I would present myself. And so God clears the room and he sits Job down and he starts by saying, so Job, where were you when? When I decided that there would be waters that would divide the lands from the land, where were you on that day? When I decided that the heavenly beings would light the earth, the sun, the moon, and all that, Job, exactly where were you on that day? On that day when I created the great sea monster, Job, just kind of think back, maybe grab your day timer and look back and figure out where were you on that day? The disciples, in the midst of a storm, experienced seamen. I mean, these guys, they knew boats, and they knew, they even knew, they were on their home field. They had their home court advantage, and the storm swept in. And Jesus is sound asleep in the boat, and they wake him up and say, Master, don't you care that we're all about to die? And Jesus kind of looked at them and said, Peace, be still. And the wind stopped, and the waves stopped. Anybody that has wallpapered with their spouse understands that when you carry a wallpaper tray of water and you stop moving, the water itself does not. And you're doing this and she's scowling at you for soiling the new carpet and everything. Jesus said, be still. And the disciples say, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Through whom all he created the world as the creator and the heir, you put those two together. And the creator is that which is in the beginning, and the heir takes you all the way to the end. The point is simply this. Jesus stands at the beginning of all things and all history. And when you come to the end of all things and all history, there stands Jesus. Or as John said in Revelation, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the heir. Colossians 1 simply says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And in John 8, when he's confronted by the religious leaders who were mocking him because he said that if the Son would make you free, you shall be free indeed. And to them he said, before Abraham was born, I am. He is the beginning and he is the end. So you have to ask yourself, is he enough? Third, he's the radiance. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus stood in the, in the temple courts as they lit those 65 feet tall, massive oil lamps that they, you know, Josephus says that every courtyard in Jerusalem was lit by those at the end of the great feast, Jesus under those 
temporary artificial light said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. God sent his own eternal son into the darkness of this world to bring a light of hope and truth. John 1, he describes it in this way. The word became flesh and he tabernacled. Literally, he pitched his tent among us. And then John, looking back later on, he's writing probably 60 years after the life of Jesus. And he said, and we beheld his glory. And it was glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of truth, grace and truth. When, when he says he is the radiance of his glory, it is a statement as he is the Shekinah evidence of God's presence. So there's this Shekinah narrative that runs through the scripture. It's, it's the, the cloud of darkness and light that came between the pursuing Egyptian army in the book of Exodus and the fleeing children of Israel when they're in a box canyon with nowhere to go, tall walls on all sides and the Red Sea behind them. And it says, and God sent a cloud, and on the, on the Egyptian side, it was so dark, they had to pitch their tents, light their campfires, and wait till morning. But on the other side, it was as light as noonday, and they walked across the parted Red Sea. It was that cloud that traveled with them, took a sharp right, went down to Mount Sinai, and it was that cloud that covered the top of the mountain as Moses went up into the cloud to meet with God face to face. It was that cloud that for 40 years guided them through the wilderness. If the, they would look up in the morning and the wife would say to the husband, so are you going to pull the tent stakes and pack things up? Do I need to roll up the rugs? No, and he said, just a minute. Let me look out and see if the cloud has moved. If the cloud is still over the tabernacle, no. Just go ahead and cook breakfast. We're going to eat some pancakes. We're going to stay where we are. But if it had lifted up, it meant, okay, pack it up, dear. We're on the move. It was the cloud that guided them. And then at the end of the book of Exodus, when they established, when they made that tent where God would meet with them, he said, and the Shekinah presence, the glory of God filled the tent. And they were not able to enter. The same thing happened when the temple, when Solomon dedicated the temple, it said, and the glory of God filled the temple and the priests could no longer enter in there. It's that same cloud that Ezekiel said, and I saw the glory of God depart from the nation of Israel. The story of Eli when he refused to deal rightly with his sons who defiled the holiness of their God. It's that same cloud that lit the hill when the angel choir came to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem and said, glory to God in the highest. It was the same cloud that covered the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus took three of his closest disciples up and Moses and Elijah met with him there. It's that glory, that radiance, that evidence of the presence of God that Jesus speaks of in John 17 in the great high priestly prayer before his departure when he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. In him 
is the evidence, the presence of the Shekinah radiance of the unstained holiness of God. Number five, he is the keeper. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1 again says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If Jesus would sit down for a 15-minute snack in the middle of the day, all that we know, we call it Mother Nature, all that we know. When, as you know, I, I, I was, I've never been on the injured reserve list in 50 years, but in February I was uh, turning to the bench for pinch hitters for a while, and uh, when, they, when they dealt with my back issue, my, my surgeon said, Mother Nature has an amazing way of dealing with these things if we just give her time. And uh, I just blessed him and went on. <laughs> See, this is that. He is the one who holds it all together. The laws of nature are laws of predictability. We, we, we climbed Long's Peak a few years ago. We were careful on the edges going around. We were talking about that yesterday. It, we were very careful. Why? Because gravity says if we misstep, we go down. You, know, you can predict that. At the same time, I know that tomorrow morning, the sun is going to rise over the woods on First Street, and there's going to be a glorious declaration of the wonder of God. This is just like, how do we know to prepare for the changing of the seasons. How, how can we be absolutely certain that this, this, this ball that we're living on is not going to one day spin too close to the sun and we all become crispy critters? It's because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I think I skipped over number four. My mind's telling me I didn't say this one. He is the perfect imprint, the exact imprint of his nature. Exodus chapter 20 said, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There was a mandate given to the nation of Israel that continues to this day that crafting idols of any form that become objects that we focus upon in order to enhance and enlarge our appreciation or our love or our worship of Christ is an act of offense to the God. It is an abomination to Him. And yet Colossians 1, the same God who said, you shall not make any graven image, Colossians 1 said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The reason that God doesn't want statutes and idols and all of those and oil paintings is simply because he has sent the ultimate perfect imprint. It, it's, it's a word taken from the making of coins. So they would have a mold, they would pour hot liquid, either, either silver or gold, into it, and when it cooled and they pulled the coin out, it molded itself exactly to the image that was made in the mold. So he is saying this Jesus is the exact image of God. That's why when the disciples the night before says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I receive it to myself where I am. There may be also, 
Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. And Philip jumped in and said, Lord, if you would show us the Father, that would be enough. And Jesus went, I've been with you how long and you don't understand? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how does God think? How does God feel? How does God act? The question is answered by looking at Jesus. He is the exact perfect replica of his Father. He simply became flesh to live among us. The question you have to ask yourself is, is he enough? Or should we look for another? It's number six, he's the purifier. After having made purifications for sin. You see, Jesus dealt, that, that's the whole message of the book of Hebrews. Jesus dealt with the sin issue one time for all. The prophets said, your sins have created a chasm. They have separated you from God. Who's going to deal with that chasm, that separation? Jesus dealt with it. The problem was that he said all the way back in the Old Testament, the wages of sin is death. He's going to say in the book of Hebrews later on, without the shedding of blood, there can be no removal, no forgiveness of sins. And yet Jesus is the purifier. He says in Hebrews chapter 9, when we get there in, I was going to say a few weeks, but Dave Drew would probably say in about three years. <laughs> Hebrews 9, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God. See, the animal sacrifices, just they just put a temporary covering. They hid our sin from a holy God for a period of time, just long enough for us to go right back out and sin again. But when Jesus paid the penalty for our sin in full, He purified us not simply externally, He transformed us internally. It is the sacred, precious blood of the God-man himself that rescues us. John chapter 1, verse 1. He says in there that if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And now... It's, it's kind of like in Proverbs, he'll say there are six things that God hates, yes, seven is an abomination. So you kind of have that Hebraic structure. Remember, this is written primarily to Jews who understand that. He lays out these six as a ramp up to the greatest point of all. Number seven is the point. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on eye. He is the exalted one. Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Acts chapter 2. This Jesus God raised up and that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's talking about the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 5. The God of our fathers 
raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Ephesians chapter 1. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things. First Peter chapter 3. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Hebrews chapter 2. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's why the voice crying from the cross declared, it is finished. The work is done. There is nothing more to do. He is going to the right hand of the Father to take his seat. That's a shocker. To the Hebrews, that was shocking. You see, there are no seats in either the tabernacle or the temple. But it's prophesied in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And in Luke 22, it's a response to Pilate when he's querying him was simply this, from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's going to unpack that for us in a few months in Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what does it mean that he is the exalted one, that he is the seated one at the Father's right hand? His sitting down at the Father's right hand, number one, it is a sign of honor. Remember that Jimmy and Johnny were arguing with Jesus about who got to sit on the right and the left and the other disciples? It's, it's the seat of honor, of highest esteem. He sat there as a symbol of authority. He was seated at the right hand of the king has the authority. It's the reflection of the story of Joseph, who to, to Pharaoh became his right-hand man. He had charge of everything. If you wanted something from the Pharaoh, you simply talked to Joseph and you got it. Jesus at the right hand of the Father is a symbol of authority. He is also there as a sign of rest. It's finished. One sacrifice for all time. No more sacrifices to do. 
High priestly work is now just simply a prayer intercessor, which is the fourth sign of sitting there. He is one who prays on our behalf. He intercedes for us. Wow, what a powerful four verses. What a way to start a message of encouragement to those that are struggling with the question, is Jesus enough? He is the supreme prophet. He is the unique owner of all things. He's the uncreated creator. He's the exact image of God's being. He's the sustainer of the universe. He's the sacrificing priest who is also the sacrifice. He is the victorious conqueror who occupies the highest seat of honor. To Jesus was given the seat that Lucifer coveted and craved and rebelled and said, I will make myself like God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is seated on the seat that Lucifer so desperately wanted. A Jewish prophet, the model of uncompromising righteousness and a preacher of repentance. A five times divorced and currently living in a morally compromised relationship. The spontaneous testimony of a cruel Roman centurion as Christ breathed his last. They all came to this same conclusion. Truly, this is the Son of God. From this text, we have this one takeaway. True worship is simply making much of Jesus.